This episode is brought to you by Anytime Fitness. Forget dark alleys and cemeteries. For some, the gym is the scariest place of all. But it doesn't have to be. With a personalized plan and expert coaching, Anytime Fitness can help make the gym less frightening. Get more for your gym membership than machines. Get personalized support anytime, anywhere. Visit anytimefitness.com to try it for free today. Terms, conditions, and restrictions apply. See website for details. This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. This episode features dramatizations and discussions of drowning, domestic abuse, and acts of violence. Listener discretion is advised especially for those under 13. Please note, the story you're about to hear is not drawn from any single account of the mermaid. We've combined elements of several stories and legends about this aquatic maiden for dramatic effect. Colin McIntyre stood at the railing of the small fishing vessel, staring at the distant Scottish cliffs on the horizon. He'd been at sea for six months, trailing the shimmering schools of Atlantic fish. It had been a good season. The deck was littered with bushels of pike, salmon, oysters, and clams. But Colin was ready for home. His heart longed for a glimpse of his seaside village on the Isle of Skye and the feeling of firm soil beneath his feet. A nearby sound drew Colin's gaze down to the frothing sea, just in time to see a sleek, shimmery tail dip beneath the waves. A giant tuna, judging by the size. He was about to shout to the crew when it breached again. But it wasn't tuna, or even a seal. It was a beautiful woman, nude and frolicking in the waves. Colin wiped the salt from his eyes, but she was still there. She seemed to beckon him before diving once more. Colin had not even a moment to consider this strange encounter when a more immediate concern reared its head. From out of the east, an enormous bank of clouds began to form. They seemed to swallow the sun itself. The crew raced about the deck, lowering the sail, battening the hatches, and preparing for the ferocious typhoon. Colin slopped the caught fish from the forecastle and down into the hold below. But then a sailor's voice cried from on high, Rogue wave! A wave towered over the ship, higher than the mainsail mast. Colin had just re-emerged from the hold, when it hit. 
the mizzen snapped and swung toward him, carrying him over the railing. In an instant, Colin's world became a rage of white foam, icy cold, and splintered wood. He flailed desperately in the water, but had no way of knowing which way was up. A plank of driftwood struck his side, and he gasped in pain, sucking in salt water. His flailing arms slowed, his vision darkened. A flash of distant lightning lit the ocean with an eerie glow. Colin's eyes widened. The woman he had seen from the ship was swimming toward him, her fishy, finned tail undulating like that of a porpoise. He was too stunned to resist as she placed a hand on either side of his face. Then she pressed her lips to his, and his lungs filled with air. Welcome to Mythical Monsters, a ParCast original. I'm Vanessa Richardson. Every week, we dive into history's most legendary monsters. In telling the stories of their origins, we hope to shed light on some truths hidden behind the creations of these beasts, where they come from, what they symbolize, and how they expose some of humanity's greatest fears. You can find episodes of Mythical Monsters and all other ParCast originals for free on Spotify or wherever you listen to podcasts. To stream Mythical Monsters for free on Spotify, just open the app and type Mythical Monsters in the search bar. At ParCast, we're grateful for you, our listeners. You allow us to do what we love. Let us know how we're doing. Reach out on Facebook and Instagram at ParCast and Twitter at Parcast Network. Today, we're discussing the mermaid. This inquisitive creature is most often depicted as a bare-chested woman with the lower body of a fish. She lures sailors, causes storms, and can even transform into a human. Without a doubt, the mermaid is one of the most ubiquitous mythical creatures, saturating practically every continent and culture. Today, the image of her Piscine body graces the logo of the Starbucks coffee cup, while the bronze mermaid statue in the Copenhagen surf is one of the most photographed images in all of Denmark. For centuries, mermaids have appeared in virtually every art form, from sculpture, paintings, and poetry to modern cinema. Because of the mermaid's association with the untamable sea, women throughout history have adopted her image as a defiant symbol of female rebellion. The first documented mermaid-like figure is nearly four millennia old, appearing around 1800 BCE. The ancient Babylonian god Oannes had the upper body of a man and the lower body of a fish, and was an emissary of Ea, the god of water. According to the Chaldean priest Berossus, Oannes arose from the Red Sea, bringing with him the hallmarks of civilization. He taught the early peoples the rules of architecture, law, order, and language. 
A mere 800 years later, a female goddess with similar characteristics emerged in Assyria. Her name was Atargetus, and like Oannes, she had the lower body of a fish. Today, she's remembered as the world's first mermaid. Long ago in the city of Assur, in what is now present-day Syria, a queen ruled over her people with a measured hand and utmost grace. A targetus was the final word on all disputes. She was beloved amongst the Assyrians. Every morning, they would all stand on their doorsteps and shout her name. The sound washed over the city like a tsunami. It would reach the palace and wake the queen from her sleep. And in the evening, she looked out from her balcony and saw a sea of lanterns, each one a tiny flame lit to honor her through the darkest night. But Atargetus was lonely. Despite the profound respect her subjects felt for her, she longed for a true partner. One day, the queen was riding along a nearby river when she spotted a shepherd bathing in the water. His back rippled with muscle. His face was strong and proud. The shepherd's name was Hadad, and even from this distance, Atargetus had fallen in love. Atargetus and Hadad quickly married and threw a feast to last a thousand and one nights. Every wine from the cellars was emptied. Every food was on offer. Revelry and ribald laughter consumed Asser. But it was in the midst of this celebration that tragedy befell a targetus. Hadad was drunk and enjoying the attention of his guests. In an effort to impress his wife's subjects, he began leaping over a herd of bulls that had been presented as a wedding gift. Each time he cleared the deadly horns, he took another sip from the heavy flagon of wine. Atargetus goaded her lover on, his acts of bravery quickening her heart. Clapping her hands, shouting with glee, she begged Hadad to leap once more. Hadad turned and bowed, a smile aimed at his perfect consort. But the wine dulled his mind, and the bull's horns were sharp. A scream of agony erupted from Atargetus's breast, but it was too late. Her husband fell limp, his intestines torn from his stomach by the creature's horns. He had been gored straight through by his own wedding cattle. The occasion transformed from feast to funeral as a temple was erected in Hadad's honor. But no matter how many supplications were offered, how many oils were anointed for her former partner, Atargetus found no peace. Instead of the lanterns, the night was filled with darkness. While once her name had echoed over the city each morning, now the only sound was her baleful wails of sorrow. One night, she set out on horseback to see the place where she had first spotted Hadad. She waded in the water until it was up to her knees, then her waist. Deeper she went until only her head was above the dark churn of river water. With one final breath, she whispered Hadad's name 
and sank below, ready to meet him on the other side. But as the inky darkness consumed Atargetus, something unexpected happened. Below the water, her legs began to change. Her skin became the glistening scales of a fish. Her feet became fins. She found that she could breathe as easily as if she were on land. The gods had not permitted her to die. She had become the first mermaid. Anna closed the worn book of old tales and looked down at her son, saying, That's enough stories for tonight, my love. Their one-room seaside cottage crackled with warm light from the hearth. Anna's son, Sam, was already nestled deep beneath the covers of his small cot in the corner, but he scowled at his mother's words. He wanted another story, but he settled for a question. Are mermaids real, Mom? Anna smiled down at her son. She was about to respond when a gruff laugh filled the cottage. Angus McIntyre stumbled through the door, reeking of whiskey. He belched and laughed again. Of course mermaids are real, daft child. My old granddad saw one himself once, rescued him from drowning in the midst of a storm. Sam's eyes widened, and he asked his father if this was true. Angus sniffed indignantly. Of course it's true. Are you calling my granddad a liar? He also saw a red cap the next year, and the year after that he caught a mad fairy and stole her gold. It's thanks to him we live in this marvelous palace. Angus laughed and belched and scratched his stomach, then threw himself into bed without bothering to remove his mud-caked shoes. Anna scowled at her husband. Then she kissed her son's forehead and went to join him. Story time was over. But Sam couldn't sleep. He lay awake, his mind dancing with images of a targetus and the other merpeople who populated his mother's stories. He imagined the underwater kingdom where they were said to live in perfect harmony. There were pictures of it in her book of old tales. The crystal spires and seashells leapt from the page, and every scale on the tail of every illustrated mermaid danced in the firelight. He wanted so badly to see them again, but his mother had taken the book away. It rested on the bedstand a few inches from his sleeping father. Sam crawled out of bed as silently as he could manage. He crept across the floor, sneaking up to the larger bed where his parents slept. Even in sleep, his mother Anna glowed with beauty and love. Sam had heard other men wonder how Angus McIntyre had come to win the likes of her, with his doughy skin, thinning hair, and penchant for drink. He was snoring loudly, and the stench of whiskey and bile filled Sam's nostrils. He had to clamp his hand over his nose and mouth just to stop himself from gagging. Sam's gaze traveled to the brass key nestled in his father's chest hair. Angus wore the key on a bit of twine around his neck and had never taken it off. 
Sam knew that it opened the trunk under the bed. The last time he tried to open it, he'd received the worst beating of his life. The thought of his father's belt reminded Sam that he'd best be getting on with it. He reached for the storybook, but another hand got there first. Angus's bloodshot eyes bore into his own. The man snarled at Sam. Get back to bed, brat. Then he blew out the lantern, plunging the room into blackness. Coming up, Sam uncovers a troubling family secret. Building a portfolio with Fidelity Basket Portfolios is kind of like making a sandwich. It's as simple as picking your stocks and ETFs, sort of like your meats and other topics, and managing it as one big juicy investment. Mmm, now that's pretty good. Learn more at fidelity.com slash baskets. Investing involves risk, including risk of loss. Fidelity Brokerage Services, LLC. Member NYSC SIPC. This episode is brought to you by Hotels.com. When I went on my last holiday to Cape Town, it was amazing. My friends were there, the weather was phenomenal, and most importantly, the food was fantastic. But one thing I struggled with was finding the right places to stay. You know, all I want is a great bed, a fantastic shower, and breakfast that doesn't end at 8 a.m. I'm on holiday, I'm still sleeping. I also like Ease, and the Hotels.com app easily helps me to find a perfect hotel for every trip. Whether you're looking for a family-friendly getaway or a relaxing spa weekend, on the Hotels.com app, you can compare up to five hotels side-by-side. Now, why would you want to do that? So you can see prices, amenities, and star ratings. And best of all, you don't have to switch back and forth between options. See? Ease. So, start planning your next getaway and find your perfect somewhere in the Hotels.com app today. Now, back to the story. The world's first mermaid was the Assyrian goddess Atargetus. Worshipped around 1000 BCE, she was said to have become so overcome with grief after the death of her husband that she tried to drown herself. But the sea saved her, changing her legs into the tail and fins of a fish. Atargetus was the goddess of the moon and fertility, and one of the most significant female deities in northern Syria. Her myth established a connection between femininity, emotion, and water that continued for centuries. Around the same period, images of fish women began to appear in artwork and buildings throughout Mesopotamia. They were considered apetropaic images, intended to bring good luck and ward off evil intentions. But these Piscine maidens would not remain benevolent for long. Nearly 200 years later, in ancient Greece, Homer's Odyssey introduced the world to the siren. Originally depicted as women with the features of birds, they would become the forerunners for the Western mermaid myth. The sirens lived on a remote island, and each day would stand on the rocky cliffs, singing into the wind and waves. Any men who sailed close enough to hear their enchanting voices were compelled to steer for the island, where they would wreck against the craggy shoals and drown. For the Greeks, the sirens were more than just a story. 
They represented the very real threat of shipwreck, particularly around specific islands of the Aegean Sea. By personifying this threat as beautiful female monsters, the Greeks had once again tied the sea to concepts of femininity. Only this time, they were connecting its dangers to the seduction of a deceitful temptress. By the Middle Ages, mermaids had become a common fixture in the folklore of seafaring communities across Western Europe. In Britain and Ireland, they were regarded as both omens and causes of bad weather. In art and stories, they were depicted as mischievous, carefree creatures who would use their wiles to lure sailors off course. Sometimes the mermaid's wiles would even extend beyond the waves. Stories from as far flung as Scotland, Ireland, Iceland, India, and Africa tell of mermaids trading their tail for human legs to walk on land. Some even settled on land, taking human husbands, but their hearts were never far from the turbulent sea. Anna poured two hot mugs of black tea and spooned some fresh honeycomb into each. As she delivered one to Sam, she smiled and said, Our little secret. Sam was in bed again, his eyes glistening. He carefully removed the worn book of old tales from under his straw-stuffed pillow. Tonight, however, Anna simply placed the book on the floor next to the chair. She did not need a book to tell this story. Many years ago, there was a fisherman who'd been drinking at the local pub for hours. When he called for another round of the house brown, the bartender took one sniff of his breath and snatched his glass away. He said, I'm sorry, lad, that's your last drink of the evening. But Ornery could have been the fisherman's middle name. In a fit of impish delight, he wrested the bottle of scotch from the bartender's hand and fled from the pub. With the bartender only a breath behind him, the fisherman dove through a high hedgerow, doubled around the back of the building, and finally lost the tail. A short time later, the unfathomably inebriated fisherman sat on a low-slung stone wall and finished the rest of that scotch. His eyes swimming, he looked up and saw three moons. It was a cold night, but the liquor was better than any fire. He thought it might be nice to take a midnight dip. He wandered down the lane, stripping off his clothes as he went. By the time he reached the shore, he was stark nude. But as he girded himself for that profoundly cold shock of Scottish ocean, he was startled by loud voices somewhere nearby. In a small cove on the beach, a group of beautiful women cavorted, their skirts shimmering as if made from the seawater itself. The fishermen hid behind a dune, watching as they twirled and twisted in the frigid air. Maybe it was his head full of whiskey, or maybe it was their balletic grace, so ethereal and perfect. But the fisherman was in love. 
Emboldened, he approached the group of women, but when they saw the lumbering, nude man, they peeled off, running straight back into the ocean. One by one, they were swallowed by the darkness. As full as it had been just seconds ago, the cove was now empty. But the fisherman was distracted. Grabbing what he thought was one of their abandoned shawls, he giddily ran away into the night with it and then collapsed into darkness. The next morning, the fisherman woke to an oppressive hangover and urgent knocking at the door. He eventually dragged himself out of bed, shrieking at whoever it was to let him get his trousers on. After last night's shenanigans, he fully expected it to be the local authorities. Coming, coming, the fisherman bellowed, but as he approached the door, he noticed the shawl he'd taken from the beach. It glistened with an unnatural shine. And when he picked it up, he found that it was surprisingly heavy, thick, and rubbery. It wasn't a shawl at all, but some kind of skin. Confused but intrigued, the fisherman tossed it into a chest and locked it tight. Propping himself against the jam, the fisherman finally pressed open the door. Standing outside was not the policeman he expected, but one of the gorgeous women from the beach. Her immaculate beauty shocked him sober. Cocking her head, she scanned the fisherman's face. Finally, she spoke a single question. Where is my skin? The fisherman was about to laugh in her face and send her away when a memory penetrated the dull pounding of his hangover. He remembered sitting at his grandfather's hearth as a boy, listening to tales about women who lived beneath the waves. Mermaids who shed their skin to dance and cavort on shore in the moonlight. A mischievous smile spread across the fisherman's features he knew at last what he'd found on the shore. Then, as if it were yesterday, he spoke the words from his grandfather's tale. If I do have your sacred skin, then any wish I want, I do win. The woman's eyes flashed with fury for a moment. Then her chin dropped in defeat. She muttered in a barely audible voice like the wind on a lonely beach, "'Tis true, sir." The fisherman's guess had been correct. He had found the mermaid's skin. As long as he kept it, she could not return to the sea. Soon the two were wed. And though everyone in town was mystified that the drunken fisherman had found such a beautiful and enchanting wife, none suspected the truth. Soon she gave birth to a child, and in time, no one remembered or cared that she had not lived in that town all her life. So ends the tale of the mermaid wife. Sam scowled up at his mother, eyes wide with distress. But that's not the end, is it, Mom? He stammered. Didn't the mermaid ever get to see her family again? Straightening up, pushing the sadness off her face, 
Anna scratched Sam's back and said thoughtfully, no, she did not see them again, but every full moon she went down to the cove and stared out at the sea. She would gather seashells and whisper into them. Because she was a mermaid, her voice would stay in there forever. Then the tide would carry the shells away, taking the messages back to her family so they would know that she was safe and happy. Sam's scowl deepened. He demanded to know how she could be happy when she was a prisoner. Anna smiled as she answered. Don't forget that she had a child who she loved very much, so much that even if she could get her skin back, she would not return to the sea. Sam still wasn't satisfied, but he had caught the sad, distant look in his mother's eye. He worried that his questions had upset her. After tucking him in, she sealed his good night with a kiss on the forehead, then blew out the light. Sam woke to the sound of the door creaking open. He tensed immediately, expecting to see his father's lumbering form appear. But when he cracked an eyelid, he spotted his mother's silhouette slipping out the door into the night. The door shut a moment later, plunging Sam into blackness again. He bit his lip thoughtfully. Then he clambered out of bed, pulled on his shoes, and scampered after his mother. Sam followed his mother's footprints down the narrow causeway that led to the churning sea. He threaded between sea-strewn boulders and thick ropes of seaweed. At last he saw her, standing at the water's edge. She stared out at the distance as the wind whipped her hair and shawl. Then she stooped to pick up a large conch shell. She lifted it to her lips and whispered something, then placed it back on the wet sand. Sam's eyes widened with astonishment. Just like in the story, he thought to himself. Then his mother started to turn. Sam dove back behind a dune, panting heavily. He didn't think she'd seen him, but he couldn't be sure. Keeping low, he raced back up the causeway toward his family's cottage. Coming up, Sam risks everything to free his mother. Now, back to the story. Since rising from a 4,000-year-old Assyrian myth, the mermaid has gone on to become a popular figure in the folklore of civilizations and cultures around the globe. Variants include the freshwater Nixie from Germany, the part seal Selkie of Scotland, and the African mermaid wife, Mami Wata. In the mermaid's many guises, it can live in brackish or freshwater, in seas or rivers, in lakes, and even, through magic, on land itself. For every civilization and type of aquatic feature available, there is a mermaid to match. While the modern Western version of the creature has its roots in Homer's sirens, it was heavily influenced by the European folktale Melusine. 
In most versions of the tale, Melusine was a half-fish, half-female maiden who removed her fishtail to marry a nobleman. When the nobleman denied her privacy to bathe in sacred water once a week, she transformed back into a fish and wriggled away forever. During the 19th century, the German Romantic author Friedrich Heinrich Karl de la Motte drew on the story of Melusine while writing his short story, Undine, which was later adapted into a famed opera of the same name by E.T.A. Hoffmann. The title character Undine is a water nymph who marries a knight in order to gain a human soul. But of all the mermaid stories that defined the creature for the modern age, the most famous was Hans Christian Andersen's 1837 tale, The Little Mermaid. It's vastly different and far more vicious than the story made famous by Disney roughly 150 years later. For instance, after The Little Mermaid gains legs, with every step she takes, it feels as if she's stomping on knives. And rather than a happy ending, it concludes with the mermaid throwing herself into the ocean and bursting into sea foam. Not every mermaid gets a happy ending. Sam shut the door behind him and froze. His father, Angus, was asleep in the chair beside the fireplace. Sam shivered hoping that the fact that his father hadn't awoken at the sound of the door was because he was dead drunk. Sam steeled himself and approached the chair, slowly skirting around the arm to appraise his father. Angus's belly was swollen from the pub's latest libations. His mouth hung slack, the teeth like crooked gravestones. His snore smelled of poison. The thought of awakening his father's wrath terrified Sam, but he had to know the truth. With surgical precision, he threaded his fingers under the necklace his father always wore. Slowly, carefully, he began to pull it up, careful not to let the dangling key snag. Inch by inch, he lifted the chain, up past the unruly bearded chin, past the nose, and then the eyes, which were wide open and staring into his own. Then Angus's snore echoed through the cottage once again. Sam breathed a sigh of relief, grateful that he'd managed not to soil himself. Trying not to trigger the creaking floorboards beneath, Sam slowly dragged the forbidden trunk from under the bed. Every inch it moved, Sam would turn to check on his snoring father. Finally, Sam slid the key into the lock. It squealed under protest as he turned it. Finally, a soft click. Inside the trunk was a strange cloak. Sam ran his small hands along the oily, scaly material. It shifted and quivered, dancing with ripples of lights like liquid mercury. It was a mermaid skin. Sam's eyes widened as he realized the truth. All of his mother's marvelous stories had been about her. His father had stolen her skin and had forced her to marry him. She was his prisoner, 
and Sam was going to set her free. But before he could consider the matter further, he was interrupted by a ghastly howl. He spun around to find his father staring right at him. His bloodshot eyes flashed with murderous intent as he steadied himself on the arm of the chair. He whispered, You have found my secret, Sam, but I will not free your mother. She belongs to me. Angus lunged and Sam dove, darting to the left, he narrowly swung clear of his father's outstretched arms and scrambled for the door. Sam burst from the back door of the house, legs flinging him down the path. The skin was heavy and unwieldy, but he couldn't leave it behind. He just had to get the skin to his mother and then everything would be all right. Seconds later, Angus practically ripped the hinges off the back door as he stormed out, a juggernaut of madness. He spotted Sam disappearing around the fence and roared. Sam raced through the short field and scrambled onto the lip of the dirt causeway leading down to the sea. It was steep and full of loose rocks. But Sam didn't have time to choose his foothold. He could hear Angus closing on him from behind, snarling and howling like a wolf. He glanced back to see how close he was. As he looked, Sam's left foot caught against a large rock. He fell, twisting, and heard the snap as he hit the ground. His leg bent into an unnatural position, seeming to defy anatomy as it angled backwards. As Sam stared down at his shattered leg, terrible pain colored his vision. A figure loomed over him. Anna crouched beside her son, face ashen with worry. She had heard her husband's furious cries and had come running to see what was the matter. She had seen Sam fall, had felt her heart in her throat when his leg snapped. She held the shell-shocked boy in her arms. Then she noticed what he was holding, and her eyes widened. The smell of ocean brine, seaweed perfumes, and manatee spume hit her nostrils. It was the skin. Anna heard Angus holler again, not far away. He hadn't seen them yet, but he would. Without hesitating, she lifted Sam into her arms, pulled the skin over her shoulders, and raced for the water. In the skin, Sam felt warm, and in his mother's arms, Sam felt safe. Even if his leg hung below him, useless, he wondered if he would ever walk again. At the shore's edge, Anna set Sam down on the wet sand. She heard Angus's hoarse voice, angry and close. He had seen them. But Anna calmly unfolded the skin and draped it around her and Sam. At first, Sam felt extreme warmth through his legs. He knew the break was awful. Angus's voice, so loud and close, suddenly sounded far away. Sam looked into Anna's eyes, worried. She told him, relax, my child. Soon we will be away. 
Sam felt the ocean spray on his face. Looking around him in a panic, he saw Anna beside him, smiling. She took his small hand and pulled him out into the water. Sam had never been this far out before. When Angus became but a speck on the shoreline, Anna finally let go of her son. Sam screamed as her hand left his. Then he kicked his legs reflexively, expecting a searing pain from the broken one. Instead, Sam's lower half moved with utter ease through the water. Flipping on his back, he looked down at his lower body. His legs had been replaced with a slick, thinned tail. His mother twirled by, a giggle bursting from her lips. That's right, my love. You won't need legs where we're going. And with that, Anna grabbed Sam's hand and pulled him underwater. After a few tentative attempts, Sam realized he indeed could breathe underwater. Flapping his powerful tail, he followed Anna through coral canyons, over dark rifts of unfathomable depth, and to a translucent castle under the sea. Sam's eyes widened at the crystal spires and towers of shells. As they swam toward the gates, countless mermaids and mermen came to greet them, their scales shimmering like a thousand jewels. Anna and Sam were finally home. Throughout history and across cultures, the mythical figure of the mermaid has been used to explore fear of the sea, along with issues of femininity. Often she's an oppressed or tragic figure. As the Assyrian goddess Atargetus, she represented the immeasurable depth and tumultuous emotion of a widow's grief. As a siren and sailor's omen, she represented the allure and danger of exploration on the high seas. The Scottish tale of the mermaid wife discusses the chains of domesticity. The mermaid's inability to return to her natural home without her skin represents a woman caged by the demands of a family she never wanted. In the end, she breaks free of her expectations and demands, escaping from the control of her unloving husband and returning to the tumultuous, untamed ocean for which her heart has always yearned. The mermaid continues to be a ubiquitous figure today, whether as a bubbly Disney princess or as a Piscean maiden hawking coffee from every street corner. Even as late as 2017, the Oscar-winning feature film The Shape of Water offered a contemporary reimagining of the mermaid myth with the tale of a mute woman finding her voice through the love of a waterbound creature. But no matter how alien or untamed, the mermaid reflects back the elements that make us most human. The desire to explore a new world, the allure of the siren song, the fear of being lost to the depths, whether of the darkest oceans or our darkest emotions. As long as the sea is a place of unparalleled danger, mystery, and beauty, the mermaid will continue to haunt the waters of our collective unconscious.
Thanks for listening to Mythical Monsters. We'll be back next week with a new episode. You can find all episodes of Mythical Monsters and all other ParCast originals for free on Spotify. Not only does Spotify already have all of your favorite music, but now Spotify is making it easy for you to enjoy all of your favorite ParCast originals, like Mythical Monsters, for free from your phone, desktop, or smart speaker. To stream Mythical Monsters on Spotify, just open the app and type Mythical Monsters in the search bar. And don't forget to follow us on Facebook and Instagram at ParCast and Twitter at ParCast Network. I'll see you next time. Mythical Monsters was created by Max Cutler and is a ParCast Studios original. It is executive produced by Max Cutler, sound designed by Anthony Valsic, with production assistance by Ron Shapiro, Carly Madden, Aaron Larson, and Paul Mahler. This episode of Mythical Monsters was written by Drew Moreland, with writing assistance by Greg Castro. I'm Vanessa Richardson.